Hi everyone, and welcome to the podcast In Good Company. When I started in finance 30 years ago, the first person I met was Carl Henrik Svanberg. He was then the CEO of S. Abloy, and following that, he's gone on to be CEO of Ericsson, the chair of BP, and he's now the chair of Volvo. We own 8 billion Norwegian krona worth, or $800 million of Volvo, equivalent to 2% of the company. Carl Henrik is one of the leading industries in Europe. In this podcast, we condense 30 years of leadership experience into 45 minutes. Tune in. Hi, everybody. This is a very special day for me because uh, after university, when I started uh, working with finance, one of the first people I met was Carl Henrik Svanberg. He was then at Asa Abloy, and he built Asa Abloy and moved on to become the CEO of Ericsson, then the chair of BP, and then the chair of Volvo. I considered Carl Henrik the leading European industrialist. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Carl Henrik, what is leadership? What is good leadership? Well, I think leadership is how how do you get the most out of your 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 people? How do you get them to perform the best they can ever be and and move towards a target? And and of course, leadership is therefore also to have a target, to have an idea where you're heading. And and I think everybody that works in a company or in a group, whatever, they love that a clear target. Now you um, just going all the way back, you. Grew up in a, a tiny little village up in northern Sweden. Yeah. What has that done to you as a leader? Well, I, I, first of all, I uh, I moved south when I was 16. We had moved around from different places, but I was born there north of the Arctic Circle. And that that uh, created a huge interest for me in, in, in the mountains and in the wilderness. And I loved being out there. And I, I was a lot... I thought I would spend my, my entire life in, 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 uh, in mountains in various ways, but... Then I moved south, and, uh, and and it was different. But it's, um, uh, I think, my upbringing was, uh, I think, that was quite fostering. I, uh, it was a demanding, demanding life. When you come to a place like that, in principle, you 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 have to do something. You you can't just sit through the whole day. You have to mm-hmm. do something to get warm, to get food, to to make a living. So because it's, it's just before work. the video games. Yeah, before the video games. But but even so, even video game players need to eat and need to stay warm. So <laughs> it's it's um, hardworking people. It's serious people. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Many people, uh, many leaders uh, talk about uh, the upbringing of moving around a lot as uh, as being instrumental in making them more agile. Yeah, I mean that that is truly. That, that I've always said that is true for me because although I was born in that little village, uh, it's actually I was there just a few weeks ago, uh, and it's so tiny now that it's like one of those where where it says the name of the village is said on both sides of the sign because because you, 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 <laughs> the minute you have entered, you're on the way out. It's just a few people <laughs> living there. But I moved about uh, fifteen times before I was uh, twenty, mm. and. Uh, and moving for me was, I think, made me develop skills in a positive way. Mm. I, I knew that I, I had to sort of make friends in the new place, make sure I, 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 I became part of uh, the groups and I adjusted. And I still have a bit of a nice feeling when it's time to move, packing boxes, moving on. I am probably a bit of a nomad in my blood by now. 
And by the way, I think one should not shy away from that fact when it comes to that I was eight years when I was out blowing, then jumped to Ericsson was a Absolutely. pretty big jump, and then to BP and then to Volvo. Yeah. I mean, I I haven't been nervous. I've been inspired by change. Mm-hmm. When I met you the first time, you were at Isa Abloy, and you built it up pretty much from from nothing, right? Yeah. Through acquisitions. Yeah. And, and generally speaking, acquisitions can be, uh, well, not many of them are that successful. So why, how did you manage to make so many successful acquisitions at Asa? Well, I can go deep into it, but but in we, well, let's go deep. Yeah, we 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 acquired first Asa and and, and with sales about five hundred million Norwegian crowns or fifty million US dollars, uh, lots of lots of people, and and the, it's an overcrowded company, and the company was making losses. We it was what was interesting with lock companies is that they you have so many variants. You sell you sell locks that fit into every door. Mm-hmm. If you if you sell a new lock and doesn't fit into the door, you have to change the door. So we basically produced everything we ever produced, and it was a mess in the whole production. We did basically a Toyota lean manufacturing process work, and we reduced from from basically 1,000 people to 500, and the company became very, very profitable. And that's when we thought, this is, you know, the, we used to say that if you, you didn't know what, what people was going to buy in the next day because we had 100,000 variants. But when the year had passed, mm. we had sold exactly the same as last year, maybe with 2 plus percent of growth or something. So we knew that we needed flexibility day by day, but not over a full year. Mm. And when we learned that, that's how we simplified the workflows and got to those numbers and high profitability. And then we realized there's a lot of lock companies out there and they all share the same problem. They were old-fashioned, often family-owned. One, the oldest JPM from 1649, have always made locks. And we bought one after the other. We rationalized and we grew. And Well, you bought 100, right? Yeah, and we, we grew from about uh, this 500 million that we were first to about uh, 25 billion. That was a lot of lock companies we acquired. So what's, steady so what's, growth. So when you buy a so what's the first thing you do when you buy a company? So now you're buying. So now I have a, a locks company. Yeah. Nikolai Tangen uh, Locks. Yeah. Uh, Hundred years old. Because yeah. it was founded by my grandfather yeah. or the guy before him. Yeah. Uh, what do you do? The first thing you do, basically the day after the press release, we would go to that company, and we would say to management, and we had, we had very, very often bonded quite a lot with management. So mm. they. They trusted that we were coming with a positive story. And we basically said, Let, let's meet everybody. And some said, you mean the whole management team? No, mean everybody. Ah, the white collar workers. No, everybody. Yeah, but then I have to, then I have, we have to go to a sports uh, house or something, a handball stadium or something. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. <laughs> and we got, and we, we, we talk with everybody because, you know, there's an old saying that if you are, in order to be a happy child, you need to be seen, you need to be loved, and if you're a son, you probably want to be a little better than your father. Yeah. And and uh, and it's the same thing here. Now you get acquired. What does this mean to me? They acquired us. We just had a strategy conference. Does that matter? And I just got a, became the the sales head. Does that matter? So you have lots of questions, and the whole momentum in the company starts, stops. But if you then go and see them, you go up on stage and say, hey, I'm Carl Henrik, this is my, my buddies here, and uh, I'll tell you how we work and what we would like uh, to see, and we think you could be a part of a great story. And, and, uh, and, and it was like sort of, 
It was a little bit like when you know when you boil spaghetti and you put a little oil in, the whole boiling slows down and the water gets much calmer and and all the nervousness. So you were the oil. Leaves. We were the. I think we were the olive oil. <laughs> <laughs> When I speak to other CEOs, they mention you as one of the people who have this incredible ability to create trust. What's the key to create trust in a situation like that? Uh, I think it is that you speak the truth, that you have. And and that might seem easy, but but it, but when you acquire, it's also a matter of you have to thought through what the strategy is. And you have to be, whatever you say, if you start to walk back on that, it's not going to it's not going to be easy. And we were very clear. I mean, we think we can create a, an absolutely wonderful company and we can be a world leader together and this and that. But but of course, change means that we have to, we probably have to do layoffs. We have to become more effective because that's how we create the resources so we can invest and become an even stronger company. Mm. So we, but you don't have to be brutal. It's, it's quite, uh, it's almost uh, self-generating a momentum that, that carries the company and the group forward. Well, you say you don't have to be brutal, but then you took over as CEO of Ericsson, and, which was just after the dot-com yeah. boom. And some people would say that reducing the staff from 110,000 to 47,000 is pretty brutal. Yeah, the brutal comment was about us, I blog. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> but but then, so you were not brutal there, but then at Ericsson, yeah. uh, tell us about that experience. Yeah, and... and uh, let me first say that when 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 they when it all hit uh, the, the the dot com burst there we were about 110,000 people and there was targets uh, we were 85 when i got in and we said uh, we we continued to reduce until we were down to 47,000 that was massive we we took out 50 million dollars of cost uh, every week for 100 weeks. Wow. This was this was huge. But the thing is that those that work in a telecom company like Ericsson, they know what the market is like. So there was, you didn't have to explain why we needed to do it. It was more about how to do it. And it was, of course, tough. And, and, and we had, we had, we continuously agreed on numbers that we need to reach and, and the people in the management team, they had to sign, they got the quota, they got the papers and, and they did it. If you look at it at the end of the whole process, um, these were very skilled people. Mm. So basically, I don't think many of those that we laid off were unemployed for very long. They, they very quickly were absorbed by other companies, which doesn't mean that you kick the can down the pitch so others maybe the opportunities but mm. lost but so if you think about that laying off 60,000 people 30,000 in Sweden and you say that it's uh, three jobs in every job Ericsson has it creates three other jobs you're over 100,000 and then you take families on top of that so so it, this was a huge thing it was tough what did, what did it do to you psychologically well i i think we were so determined to get it right and and we were the only of all our competitors that actually I think got through it in a decent shape. Mm. So it, it became a bit of an inspiration also. And I got an email from uh, from a worker coworker that uh, read that wrote to me that when we had after I think beginning of Q4 when, in in 2004 when we had a positive result. Uh, that said, today I did not take off my badge when I 
jumped on the subway on the way home. Mm. I mean, people people were proud of the whole change. Mm. And, and drive change when you know it is necessary is not hard because the alternative is harder. Mm-hmm. When you look at the telecom sector today, what do you think? Well, it's um, I, I don't know too much in detail. Of course, Ericsson goes through certain troubles that are not necessarily related to the sector per se. Some of them are maybe self-inflicted, but uh, and, and they say so themselves. Um, what's interesting with Ericsson that's been around since uh, 1874, and they they were had mechanical system, electromechanical systems, they had electric, electronic systems, transistor-driven, uh, uh, integrated uh, circuits, and then came software. Every time companies have been lost among their competitors, and Ericsson keeps going through, has an incredible ability to keep driving through and, and driving with change. And, and I think it has a lot to do with this also, that if, you, if you're nervous about change, uh, then, then, then uh, you shouldn't be at Ericsson. But if you if you're at Ericsson, you're nervous about not changing mm. because they know everybody are engineers. They know that doing no change is is, is going to take us down. Mm. So you have to change. I, I had one of my uh, fellow uh, co-workers there that came out of a meeting they had when they reorganized the division, one of the biggest divisions. And he came enthusiastically out of the meeting, and I wasn't part of the meeting. And he said, "Hi, said, how are you doing?" That was fantastic. We have completely new organization. It's going to be fantastic. What are you going to do? I have no idea. I'm sure I'm going to find something. And when you can get that spirit in the company, then you can go through very dramatic change. And I think that's what the reason why Ericsson's still around after 140 years. Mm. No, I um, I I love change. But how do you how do you find people who who like change? How do you screen for them? Well, I, I think you you foster them actually. I mean, if in Ericsson everybody is so so used to it, if you take on the other hand, if you take uh, BP, which was much more difficult because they were, if anything, they were so totally committed to supplying the world with energy mm-hmm. and doing so with fossil fuel, and and they they were determined that this is going to be for a long long time, and and their change, more dramatic change, was was clearly a a threat to to the company's existence. Mm-hmm. Well, talk about but, let's talk about uh, yeah, you know BP. So you took over as the chair, and yeah. then after two weeks, yeah. bang, <laughs> deep water horizon yeah. catastrophe, yeah. biggest oil spill the world has ever seen. Yeah, tell us. No, it was of course. Uh, I mean, first of all, I was elected two weeks before, and uh, but uh, in the first AGM, but I had joined as chairman uh, a few months earlier, but. Obviously, I, I didn't know much about the industry, so that 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 was tough. But but again, there's a there's a kind of raw strength in a company like BP to deal with the changes. People left their homes with a packed bag to go for two weeks and be part. They could come from uh, uh, Ghana or they or, or or Angola, or they could come from Azerbaijan, and they they just needed to go over and help, and they would eventually be there for half a year or something and with with uh, whatever they brought for two weeks. Uh, I mean, there was a, such a company spirit, such a company strength. Mm. But it was obviously a very challenging time for the company. Mm. And, and, uh, and I mean, my, my little knowledge, it was, there were some pluses in being new. 
because uh, if you go to America, and, and BP at the time was bigger than Exxon in America in, in oil and gas production. Uh, so, but we were the, the 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 present management gets incredibly questions and and questioned, and it gets hard to sort of stay. And 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 like the Americans say, I mean, it happened during your watch, so I'm sorry. And they are used to that. So, uh, but I was a new guy, so uh, I guess that gave me a bit of a, a leeway. Uh, it, it was tough. We also we well, had, if you split it in two, then so internally, what do you do internally? Would you have? I mean, you need to inform, 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 and focus on what the key stakeholders here, the employees, need to inform them all the time. You need to inform the board members, mm. the board members that came from all over the world. If they were sitting watching CNN and they saw the spill going, I basically called every board member every day for a hundred days, just short update, five ten minutes, just saying what was happening, so they were in the loop. They knew what was happening. And uh, the investors, newspapers are brutally tough. But newspapers write what, for example, shareholders wants to hear. Mm. So if you have shareholders on your side, you are you 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 can deal with the papers. Mm. But if you don't have shareholders on the side, then then you are on a. What is the, what is the key what's the key here to to the external side of of this crisis? Well, the problem we had, which was almost un, uh, impossible to manage successfully, but it was, uh, Fukushima was a little bit the same. Mm. I mean, here we have uh, a rig that is uh, on fire and, 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 uh, and everybody was convinced we can turn out the fire. But a rig with these four uh, pillars that it's floating on, uh, open on the upside. So as the fire brigades were pumping in water, eventually it sank. So now you have a rig that have sunk and it sank to the bottom, but there was no leak. And and then after five five days, you start to see cracks in, in the, the pipe. The, the oil pipes that goes from the seabed up to the platform, when you crush that, it's like a Coca-Cola store that you crush and bend in three, four ways. Mm. And and in the beginning, those bends hold, but after time, they start to crack. So, so you have a situation with the burning rig. A week later, it sinks. A week later, two weeks later, it starts to see some, some leakage. Of course, in the beginning, it was just muddy water after it had sunk and the seabed was stirred up. But, but so the the this one of those that whatever you said of a situation update, it was worse the next day or the next week, and sure. it's just worsened and worsened and worsened. And that's uh, you you chase your tail. It's to to you can either say nothing and and look like an idiot, or you say something and look like an even worse idiot mm-hmm. the next day because things are not what you said. So so this was about as tough as it gets, I think, as a crisis. Who did you call for advice? Well, I I, I had uh, several board members that were uh, that were really sort of uh, involved in, in all the discussions. I called them and, and, and they were very, very, very supportive. You need to understand that you have the support of your board. Mm. I had also an outside... Uh, crisis consultant, if you like, that dealt with all the big crises that we saw in the world and very, very experienced. And and and, uh, and especially for me, because I just arrived in London. Mm. So, I, I mean, I, I didn't know uh, journalists. I didn't know uh, the investors. I, so this consultant, what did he tell you? What kind of advice? Well, he said, focus on those that can fire you. 
focus on shareholders, focus on on employee on, on the board, and uh, and and focus on the employees. And and that was that was true. And I did that. Now Obama could have fired you too, in a way. Well, I, I yeah, I, I mean, he I, was a president. Yeah, he was. Uh, I guess he could, but uh, you know, Obama was. He was new as a president. Uh, uh, he was. Uh, he had. He had just had his uh, health bill. He tried to do his fir- first attempt on, on Obamacare, and that had failed. And his next big thing was now the energy field, and he opened up new drilling and further out up in the in the in the northern waters and Alaska. Um, and then this obviously uh, again failed, and he had the midterm elections coming up half a year after the explosion. So I mean, he wanted to show progress, mm. and and of course he was uh, he was out there and and. Uh, said all those things. I mean, I will make sure BP pays and all of that. But we were we were determined almost from the beginning there. Of course, it takes some time to gather your thoughts. But we, whatever happens, we need to find an agreement with the American uh, administration. We cannot have this biggest oil spill and then at the same time in, in, be in some form of battle with the administration. So when it was... Uh, when it was uh, written as I was summoned to the White House, uh, that was after six weeks of continuous pushing for a meeting. And, and what we agreed in the meeting with the fund, 20 billion for all those that were affected by the spill, uh, that we would clean up and, and, and that we would have an independent judicator, which ended up being Ken Feinberg, who did 9-11 and such, so that people that were affected wouldn't have to go to courts and go through court systems. He would deal with their claims immediately and mm. start to distribute money. That that was all our suggestions. What's the key to rebuilding reputation after a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I guess one has to understand that you are walking on a thin line here. You can't have anything more. So you need to you need to be exceptionally careful. And I would say the way the company worked through, we had BP, you know, was from the old days and one of the first to, to find oil. Um, and then, uh, then when all the crown colonies broke through, Iran and Egypt, Nigeria, and all that happened, it became a rather small British company that had started to look for oil in in uh, the North Sea and found oil and started to rebuild from there and then found oil in in uh, in Alaska in Prudhoe Bay. So it had started to grow back uh, back up again. Um, the the uh, and eventually then through the uh, acquisitions of Amoco and Arco became the biggest oil and gas producers in the in the U.S. So uh, it was a uh, well, it was a, a uh, it was a serious blow for the company, but because we had our a bit of a history by acquiring different places, it also meant that if you took a, an oil driller in Azerbaijan and moved him to the Gulf, the protocols may not be exactly the same. So when we started to move in people to help with the spill, that became the driver of a complete. Uh, overhaul of every way we worked so that mm. that it was completely harmonized throughout the company so the company if, as it uh, normally is became stronger and better after the accident mm. Mm. now then you moved on to volvo what's been your priorities at volvo 
because you've been going through a lot of change there. We have gone through a lot of change. The first priorities were were obvious because if you compare to our uh, our competitors, be it Daimler or Scania at the time, Trayton today, um, we always had a lower level of earnings, and we also were much worse in in trying to follow the cyclic cyclicality, which is typical in our industry, of course. Mm. And, and, and of course, they both related because the company was what quite, quite bureaucratic, was not slimlined, trimmed. And so the first thing was to really drive down, simplify, 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 and drown, drive down the, 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 the break-even level uh, to, to a level where we could make much more money and therefore could be much more on the offensive because we also knew that uh, any transformation was around the corner. So, so um, and, and of course, there was a lot of uh, cost uh, being driven out. And Martin Lundstedt, the new CEO, was actually probably an as, as successful hire as you can make because he was, Skada, which was much smaller, but was absolutely a trimmed, well-run company, exemplary company. And typically in the auto industry, you, you come up either through sales or you can come up through development or you can mm-hmm. come up through production. But very few actually rotate around and learn all the different trades. But Martin had. He had done all of it. So he came more or less fully trained for taking on this much bigger job. Mm. And, and uh, I mean, they didn't, we were actually lucky in that sense that we were absolutely in good form when the uh, COVID hit. And, and there we showed that we, we really could take that uh, swing. And, and, and then we have, and after that, I think we demonstrated, we continue to sort of do better and better in, in, in every aspect. Uh, but that was also key to deal with the third challenge, which is climate change. Mm. Talking about being fully trained, um, what are the experiences that you've taken from your previous jobs into the chair of Volvo? Well, I, th- there are several, I think. But one, one is, first of all, this is a changing world. Uh, will, will always be. And you have to create a feeling in a company of trust in its own abilities so that you think you can excel in change. And if you get 100,000 people to understand that it is all about change, then you get nervous when you stand still. Mm. So you get a positive momentum for change. That, I think, I've learned from, from Ericsson. But I also learned from... We were almost religious in as Abloy in driving the workflows and simplifying the companies and took almost every company up 10% profit margin points uh, and, and just by simplifying and best practice and everything. So so I think ASA was a good school in, in general manufacturing, in productivity, in in, in, in uh, getting every everything, every calorie out of the company and its abilities. Um, so, but Ericsson was the opposite. And I, I used to joke with my, my guys at Savloy, I said, Ericsson is like, white water river rafting while asa is more like uh, fly fishing you know it's uh, very predictable <laughs> <laughs> um moving on to something slightly different uh, the role of the chair now what's the most important thing a chair does yeah there, there there are a few things that i think are are really key 
uh, you can never get away from the fact that you you are the ultimate responsible of, of recruiting the right CEO. Because you can have the greatest ideas, whatever, you have to find the right CEO. And you have to find a role where you are able to challenge the CEO to stretch without the CEO feeling stressed or questioned or something and create an atmosphere that we are here to do the right thing and, 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 and have fun at work. But the other thing is, of course, to use, use the board as effectively as you can. And I think it's important that the CEO in a company has, can look up at his board members to someone that has done something similar, mm. taking a company through a dramatic change, uh, achieved, uh, taking companies through technology shift, whatever, so you know you have somebody to learn from. It doesn't work if the CEO looks, I don't mean look down in a, in, a, in a way that you're negative to the person itself, but is much more experienced than the person that is in the board and in theory supposed to advise you. Mm. So, so to get the right people around the board table in the boardroom is key. And then how do you, how do you then let the discussion go in a room so that you get the most out of everybody's skills and experiences mm -hmm. and i i often say to martin and say to anybody that from time to time the ceo presents an idea and then the discussion starts to go and you realize after a while that this is not going to go the way that maybe the ceo had thought and and you may say well i may say or martin may say that uh, Maybe we should take this another turn and come back in a, in a quarter. At that time, it is so important that Martin doesn't feel, the CEO doesn't feel, that this was a failure. Yeah. You want him to feel, wow, I was lucky to have that discussion with the board. I'm so grateful, and now I'm going to work on it and come back to make it, make it a much better, uh, better choice. I think this is something of importance, and 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 that takes, of course, skill skill from uh, the CEO. It it takes uh, from the from the chairman. It takes uh, also maturity for the board members, and it takes maturity, uh, cleverness from the CEO. Supposedly, one of the most important things for a chair is to remember that uh, he or she is not the CEO. Yeah, is that, a, is that a problem for you? No, I don't. No, I, I I've never felt it like that, and it, it depends a little bit also how you work. When I go back to Asabloy, it was just companies everywhere. So my role, well, you may recall me as the CEO of Asabloy, which I of course was, but but I was often in the chair position versus mm. them, mm. and and uh, so and it, it, I think I have never been. I've never been the person necessarily on the barricades with uh, swinging the, the flag and, uh, and and such. I may have been that in, in more more theoretical way uh, with, with because I think it's so important that the CEO must must lead the discussion about the vision and the direction of travel and all of that. How, how do chairs how do chairs waste their time? What's the most common way they waste their they time? They waste the time. Yeah. Well I, I think First of all, I, I, there is a way, if you think about that you're going to be, uh, if you are a chairman for say uh, 10 years or whatever, uh, every day 
where you don't feel that the company is making some form of meaningful progress, mm -hmm. even if it, you will have a downturn and downsizing and all sorts of difficulties and what have you. But every day that you don't do the utmost of advancing the company's position or sort of help advancing that, inspire that, it's a waste of time. Goes that, with, the same goes for the CEO, I guess. Yeah, it goes, the same goes for the CEO. It's, it's actually interesting when you think about it because the 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 company, the CEOs, I think, are the among the most long term looking uh, people you can find in society. People are saying that we are working on a quarterly uh, sort of leash uh, from shareholders. Well, you have to perform quarterly. In, in, in relation to the circumstances. Otherwise, the shadows may, may get angry or irritated. Why did you do that? But let's not fall into the trap that that's the life of a CEO. Martin Lundstedt, or when I was at Ericsson, whatever, your focus is 10, 20 years out. What is coming? Mm. The, the division managers may, may look uh, a year out or two years out, but you look five, 10 years out. Of course, Martin is thinking a lot about where is battery technology going and where is... So, and, and, and a board, what's interesting with a board is that a CEO changes from time to time. The board never changes. Mm. The board is an institution. People in the board rotate, but the board is there for a long time, with there forever. Uh, and, and that also means that the board has... If you take culture in a company, for example... Impossible to change your feel. Impossible to change culture in a in in a company from the board seat. Well, it is, but you have a responsibility to understand if the culture is mm. sort of right. You cannot expect that the new a new CEO every new CEO changes the culture of a company. So who is responsible for the culture? Well, I think the board carries a big responsibility to understand is this right. If it isn't, you need to think hard about how you can change it. But it's uh, culture takes a long time, more than a tenure of a CEO to change. Yeah. Can the chair and the CEO be the same person, you think? Or should it? I, on that, I would say, if you take uh, take the American way, where, the, where they are, and, for example, when uh, Motorola, I think, on a, like, I don't know exactly the details, but principally say they on a Monday announced that they are going to sell their patent portfolio. And on the Friday, Google have bought it. I mean, in, in, in Ericsson, I mean, it would take months for us to work up the acceptance from a board to do something like that and so on. So you can act much faster because you have a sort of a strong man at the top. But on the other hand, the, 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 it's much harder to challenge the chair and the CEO that person mm. becomes a very strong-headed person at the top. And I think that has some serious negative sides as well. I mean, we, we advocate against it. Yeah, Do you I think know. that makes sense? I, I think it makes sense. Although from time to time, there are examples when every system can have its examples of where it's really sure. worked well. Yeah. If you take the British system, where the CEO and the chair, the chair is much more active. I had, uh, I was expected to be three days a week at work, and I was expected to travel myself, have all employee meetings, meet, meet partners, and, and and what have you. And and if uh, the CEO would say that I think the new strategy is really getting accepted, it works really well. Then when you have a what we call an executive session with only the non non execs, they would say, "Carl Henrik, you heard what Bob said. Do you see that?" 
And I was expected to be out and feel that. That system is not bad in theory. It's actually quite good. If, if, that, if the two work really well together, mm. it can work really well. But it's hard to find a good chairman. It's hard to find a good CEO. So the likelihood that the couple together, that's an additional complexity mm. that that mm. works, is, is maybe not so high. But if it does, it's great. If you take the Swedish system, when the chair is, is definitely non-executive, I think that's a very good system. It's a safe system. It has a lot of check and balance in there. Moving on to corporate culture, you said that uh, it's difficult to change the corporate culture during one CEO uh, period. Um, now, corporate culture is one of the things I spend a lot of time on. I think yeah. it's incredibly interesting. What, When you look at corporate cultures, what characterizes a good corporate culture? I think in today's world, I think ability and appetite for change is very important. And a, a culture where you talk about issues, I, I, I used to always push something I call seek the truth, because you have a lot of corporate truths. Yeah. They may say in Ericsson, everybody knows that we don't make any money on broadband. Okay, good, good question. Let's sit down. Let's take this from, from the beginning to the end. Make sure that we understand we're making money on broadband. So we can either stop doing it or, or change our view on how we're doing. Uh, I mean, to seek the truth and not get into this kind of statements, but you are serious. Uh, I think that's, that's very important. I think it's important in, in a in the in the management team that you really work through issues so that it's 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 a high ceiling in the boardroom and every question is key but once you're out there you are representative of that team and and you stick together you are sort of so so there's if 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 one one person in the management team says something another one says something else then you leave the company in, in confusion mm. so so Really go to the bottom of the issues, work them through, and then stay strong, and then spend enough time on on sort of making sure you inform the company so that everybody comes along and, and, and understand what the direction of travel is. I think these are... Uh, and if you take culture, if you take risk, what is the, what is the appetite for risk? Risk is something positive if you take a calculated risk. And without a, a, a willingness to take risk, you will never win. How do you get people to take risks? By really talking through the issues, because take a risk. It's not a good risk-taking to throw yourself out of an airplane and hope you find a an, an parachute on the way down. I mean, that's <laughs> stupidity. So, so risks need to be calculated and needs to be open for debate. So you know what you're doing. And sitting still is also a risk. So you have to understand that the future involves risk. What, what are the most important cultural changes you have implemented? I, I, I would say, I, I used to say, I have a couple of mantras, but one, one was that seek the truth and know your numbers. You, if you can organize a company in such a way that you can, everybody understands their financial targets and they can talk about them, truly understand the numbers and not just going around with a, with a, a different kind of a, 
statements or whatever, but, but it's not founded on reality. So know your number. Numbers are key. I think to, to, uh, to know your job, have respect for the job. And as a CEO, you are, you're the highest person in the company. You see more, you see competitors, you see, you see all the different activities you have. You see customers, you see everything. You have a huge responsibility to gather all of that knowledge and find and, and, and put it together into a strategy you can visualize to people so that they see the picture. You know this thing with the, 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 the guys that are building this temple, uh, uh, you may have heard about it, but you see an, on, on a cartoon that people are cutting stones. Yeah. And you ask a guy, what are you doing? We're cutting a stone. And you ask the other one and says, we're building a temple. If you can have, help everybody to see the temple, to see the, the, the goal. And I, in all that, I also think that we had as, an, as a code word in Ericsson or as, as, as a cornerstone was uh, respect. You need to deal with all your people with respect. Mm. The, 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 if you, you have people that, you have bosses that come into a, a room where people are sitting and, and they talk for a while and when they go out, everybody's exhausted and think we need to take a break here. We have other bosses that comes in and people are ready to fly to the moon. They, they get so energized. So you have people that eat energy and you have bosses that, that uh, create the, energy. What's the difference between them? What, what is the key to create energy? Well, I, I think it is. You I mean, have, is it something you can train, or is it uh, innate? I, I, I think it starts with a clear understanding of what the challenges lie, what capabilities you have, what the vision of the company is, and if you can describe that, and you can describe the strategy, and you you can take people on your journey. That that I think is the the winning formula. It's not very complicated, but but I think it requires that a boss truly takes on the leadership of I am now the boss of this company and I am responsible for making sure that we have a direction of travel that I can explain so many comes aboard. You have others that come in as a boss and say, well, they have to choose one, they choose me and I'll do the best I can. How, do you, how, do, you make, how do you make sure that there isn't too much bureaucracy in a company? Well, I mean, I, I think it's... Uh, Sort of for me, bureaucracy is just something that, that there shouldn't be bureaucracy. You need to take all that out. That is how you sort of clean the company, you clean the, the P&L from all, 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 the workflows needs to be straight. You, 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 uh, anyone that, uh, I mean, there shouldn't be anyone in the company that isn't contributing every day to where you want to go. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's a good question. I've thought about it for a long time. Bureaucracy kills a company. Yeah, it's uh, you have to you have to just clean it out. It's not easy, huh? No, and we, we used to joke about it when I was uh, back in the old uh, ABB, where there was so much reports, and people say just uh, stop sending in stop sending in the data for the report and see if anybody asks, and, <laughs> and nobody ever asks. I mean, just <laughs> not so sure that would have gone down so well uh, in this fund, but uh, hey, uh, we'll give it a but go. This is back to the end of the 70s, so beyond rosing again, I'm sure <laughs> it's far beyond that. Yeah. Now, uh, moving on to leadership, um, one, can, uh, one can split between being an effective leader and an efficient leader. They are, in a way, two a bit different things. Now, how, can a, how is a leader most effective? Well, first of all, I would say that effective is, is really the name of the game. Efficient... Uh, 
you know, I, I think when I started in the end of the 70s, beginning in the 80s, you, you had this idea of the monster leaders that worked 22 hours a day and then they could read the speed read something and they could do absorb and they were dictating letters while they were at the dentist's office or whatever clinic. I, I think the effectiveness is your ability to engage and inspire people around a target that everybody shares. And how, do you, do, is, how do you do that? Well, I, I mean, there is no, first, you, you have to, don't complicate your strategy, make it easy, make it easy, explainable, make sure you, you have the meetings I, and, and where, where everybody can hear it firsthand. I mean, we had in Ericsson, because it was so fast, the whole strategy development or, or the whole development of the industry. Uh, so we we had, every year we set up that we had three, four workshops with maybe 75 people, 100 people each in three, four parts of the world. And we constantly mapped all the, everything everybody saw, what was it they were, what was the experience, what was it they were missing, what should we think about and all that. That was put together as a, as, as a, a strategy uh, approach. And then we had worked on that hard in the management team. Then we invited the 300 top leaders in the company and, and over a three-day session. And then we went through every single aspect of the company and, and everybody could talk for eight, 10 minutes. And someone said to me, I cannot, I cannot explain the radio strategy in Ericsson for eight minutes. That's not serious. And I was to say to them, give CNN three minutes and they can explain the Second World War, how it started, how it ran and how it ended in a, mean, in a way that we can understand. Mm-hmm. You can have 60 minutes, I promise you, the people will stop listening after eight, seven, eight, whatever. So condense it down to something you can understand, area by area by area. Mm-hmm. And then it ended up with a, a slide, a series of maybe 30 slides or 40 slides that were what we were going to do for the next year. Mm-hmm. Then all of these 300 went home and ran all employees meetings with 300 each. Then we, within a week, we could reach 90,000 people. Wow. And everybody around the strategy. So, so I mean, the trust in the company that they don't need to worry that there are other ideas that we should consider more. They know that every year we are vacuum cleaning the world from ideas mm-hmm. and putting together a strategy. Now, Cole Henrik, you, uh, of course, look exactly the same as you did when we first met 30 years ago. Yeah, so do you. <laughs> We're a little thin but, but the fact is we, <laughs> we are 30 years older. Are you a better leader now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you are a leader in different ways. I'm a, I was more, I was more energetic then. Probably uh, doesn't mean I don't have energy, but I'm probably more thoughtful. There is some. And t- and tell me the trade-off between energy and thoughtful. Yeah, you know, but I, I give you the example that uh, you, you probably are aware. You could somebody called to me the time after fifty, the time to be wise. You you have you've had your successes you've had your maybe your failures, and and if you're sitting here in the room with say ten people around and discussing something, you will from time to time know I have this great argument coming here, and somebody else is talking. I need to jump in first because I I want to say this, and you realize that this guy or a woman over there they're about to say the same thing. So you want to come forward. You need to make sure you get in, and you come to a point where. That's no longer important. Mm. And, why and you, why is that, you think? I, I just think you get your ego is maybe uh, coming down a bit. I mean, let's face it, in this time of jobs, if you don't have an ego, if you don't, there's something that drives you to 
spend totally disproportional time working and lots of worries and successes, but also failures and all of that. There's a, there's a drug in that. And uh, if you were to be completely honest, what's been your dragon? My dragon? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I, uh, it, it's a little hard to say because uh, that there are, you have constantly challenges. I think uh, I am probably wiser, less self-certain. I have... I have an ability to quite quickly uh, understand a situation. Yeah, but the driver, what's been the driver? Is the, it coming the, from a tiny village, you think? You mean, what's the driver? Well, I mean, I don't know. We are all different. But but I've had this, I don't get tired easily. I've always had this drive of doing things, not on my own. I'm not the guy that will walk up on Mount Everest alone or sail alone like Frenchmen do in a boat around the world. I always I get my inspiration from taking a team mm-hmm. and really energizing the team and reaching great targets that 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 we have a sort of set. But who do you want to show? I mean, uh, you mentioned that it's important to be a little bit better than your father and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, you know, you I, 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 I mean, if I get, uh, if I really dig into my soul, I had a sister that was uh, diabetic from nine. Uh, got diabetes in 1957. She was born in 1949. Uh, and uh, she got blind when she was 25. And she uh, she had to transplant a kidney and amputate feet and stuff and, and, and passed away when I was 46. And, and uh, my, uh, this was, I mean, I don't, rec- I hardly recall uh, the, the, uh, any time when my parents uh, sort of didn't always wanted to talk about my sister and the issues she had and all of that. And I, from early on, I always felt that I will always make them proud. I will not add to the burden. I've always believed that that in a way have contributed to my, to my drive and my wish to always perform would that have been the same anyway? But I'll tell you another interesting story because I can. Do you think that's um, uh, yeah. just oh, sorry? Just do you think that's the reason why you've been operating in Sweden so much? You could have gone anywhere in the world, and now you are going back to Sweden. I'm coming back to Norway. We're doing something that we think is good for the. Well, I I you know, I, I have a maybe it's because we moved around fifteen times, so I I. I, I, I I love Sweden. I mean, Sweden has so many issues, mm. but I, I love king and country doing the right things. I mean, I'm 71. I, I should have stopped a long time ago when I, I left my CEO job when I was 57. I mean, I would have been, if I wanted to be financially better off, I should have continued as a CEO. But I like to be in companies, you know, if you think about uh, Ericsson with the, in energy or, or in in, in telecommunications and BP and energy and Volvo and transportation, they all play a very important part in society. And that's, uh, that's been, but if we are in this soul searching mode, I must tell you a story because I think it's a cool story. When, when I became CEO of Asa Abloy, and, and I came from very simple circumstances, and my mother and father, they lived then in Norrköping, south of Stockholm. 
150 kilometers south of Stockholm. And and they told me that I was going to get 120,000 uh, US dollars, 1,200, 1.2 million Swedish. I was going to get that as my salary. And I mean, for me, that was, I mean, my head was swinging. I, I, this, how did I end up here? How could this be? So what do you do? 42 years old. I called my mother and said, are, are, you, uh, are you home tonight? Of course they were, because they never went anywhere. So I drove down then 20 kilometers, 150 kilometers, and I sat there during the dinner, and I tried to get into the topic. I mean, my father, I think he had 14,000 a month in, in, in pension, and my mother had 5,000 or something. And I was sitting there, and I was trying to get into the topic, and I couldn't get them there. And then my mother eventually said, how much are you going to make? And I said, 1.2 million. And she says, wow, that's fantastic. And then my father looks at me and says, is that really necessary? <laughs> and you know, I, I must have thought about that, is that really necessary, hundreds of times. And I don't think it is. I'm not sure it is. So what is necessary? I don't know. But I, I, I mean, the thing is that, is it necessary for, is it necessary for you how to make money? Is it necessary for the plantis to make money? No. But if you want to, if you want to, uh, if you want to sort of uh, buy Haaland, you have to give him a good salary because everybody's after him, and he's uh, it's not many that is like him. So where do you get the real pleasure from? It is definitely from achieving things together with a group. It's it's that's that's the whole thing for me. Well, Con Henry, you have achieved some amazing things. <laughs> uh, congratulations and a big thanks for being here today. Thank it's you. Been wonderful. Thank thanks you. Thanks a lot.